This morning's scripture comes from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17, and Ephesians 6, 15. My wife, Becca, will be reading it. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Romans 10, 9-17 Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <coughs> how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Thank you very much, Becca. This is the word of God. We've been in this series right now about the armor of God for, for a few weeks. And we've talked about the belt, we've talked about the breastplate. Today we're talking about shoes. Now, those of you who know me, I'm an avid runner, and I understand the importance of a good pair of shoes. Um, when, I was, when I first started really running, I started finding out um, it mattered the kind of shoe I got. Because if I got the Walmart special, it would last maybe a month. I have this problem where I overpronate. What that means is I run on the sides of my feet. And um, so actually I went to a shoe store and they measured my feet and everything, which is the worst experience possible. I don't like people touching me, let alone touching my feet. But they did. And they got me a special kind of shoe, it was called Ultra. And Ultra, they, they would last for about a year, which was amazing. And then, um, uh, once again, I can't tell you how much I valued those pair of shoes, but then they changed uh, the Silas shoe um, with a recent uh, incarnation of that, and this is what happens if I don't have a good shoe. Those of you can see here. I don't want to shake my hand after this. Um, this happened after Rocky challenged me to a 100-mile uh, race for July. It's a whole month, not just one time. Um, for the month of July. So I had to run in shoes like this, and I got a huge blister on my arch. And Rocky had thought at the time, oh, this will be great. That'll slow Jason down. Well, it didn't. <laughs> I just ran on the sore. Anyway. <laughs> um, your feet are so important. Good shoes are so important. In the military, um, this, was, this, was more, this was so important. We found this out 
Um, this was a huge topic when it came to World War II because people started finding out they were getting trench foot. I'm not going to go over the details of trench foot because you're wanting to eat after this, maybe. But basically, if you don't take care of your feet, you won't have feet to, to, to worry about. There was a lot of GIs um, because their feet um, were unfortunately rotting away. In the Roman Empire, they knew about this. It's kind of weird how much like, technology gets lost and then we found. They knew about this, and that is why they developed the um, Colleague um, shoe. I'll talk about that in just a second. But first, I'm going to, have, I'm going to welcome Rocky the Roman uh, to come in. If he's, if he's dressed, all right! I won't have him, um, and if you want to come up on stage, I won't, I won't have him uh, here too long, because um, unfortunately I didn't get like real Roman shoes for Rocky, I got kind of costume pieces. Um, the Roman shoes, um, you can kind of see up on here in your bulletin what they actually look like, um, they had three major functions to them. You can see on up here that they actually pounded nails into the bottom of the shoes. There were three functions, three major functions to the Roman um, caligae. Um, one was um, to dig into the sod when it was time for the shield wall. This is one of the things that made them just an incredible force because they would plant their feet. And I didn't, and I, I, I didn't get real Roman shoes for Rocky. I'll tell you why because I don't want to replace the carpet either. Um, they were like cleats. They had nails that would stick into the sod, and as people would rush up against them, they would find a wall, a shield wall, that they could not push through because these Romans could plant their feet in, in, in the sod and be there, be stuck there much greater than they were. Here's the second one, and um, probably the kids might like this, I don't know. But uh, it's, it's, it's kind of dark. Um, they would wound people, and they would be on the field, and then they would stomp them to death as they were traveling along. And that was part of the function of the shoe, and having the nails in the shoe. The second one was, it was actually kind of like Rocky's shoes here. They were, um, they were well, I guess not, because they were supposed to be open-toed. And um, there was a reason for that. I mean, it didn't give you any protection for your feet if somebody were to stomp on them. Which I wish I Um... What it did, on the other hand, is it didn't wear as you ran, as you as you marched. They would go on 25-mile marches. Now, it'd be interesting to make Rocky do that today and see how his feet felt afterwards. But <laughs> they could do that, and their feet would be really, really sore, but they wouldn't get the blister like I had when, when I was wearing those shoes. That way, their army could actually be a lot mobile, more mobile and uh, a lot faster. Well, thank you so much, Rocky the Roman. Appreciate you coming out here. The breastplate looks awesome today, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think Rocky makes a great Roman. I don't know about you guys. I can't wait for the rest of the stuff to come out. Those were three functions of those Roman shoes. There was also a different kind of shoe they'd wear um, if uh, another function of war that you may not think about, which was being the messenger, being the messenger of peace. When two armies would go to, go to war, eventually one would, have to, one would have to give in, the other one would conquer, and then there'd be runners who'd go out to tell the people, to tell the other enemies um, peace. Or there'd be a messenger who'd go out and offer terms of peace. In 2019, I ran my first, and today anyway, only marathon. 
Uh, yeah, first and only marathon. A marathon is 26.2 miles. It's kind of an awkward number of miles to run. Partially the reason why you, you run 26.2 miles is because something from history, the Battle of Marathon. As uh, Pastor Curtis, Pastor Alyssa were talking about the events in the Book of Esther of Xerxes, also known as Artaxerxes, um, um, he, uh, not in the Book of Esther, but he was one of the people who attacked the uh, Greeks. Um, those who've heard the story of the 300 Spartans, that's where that comes from. His father, Darius, attacked the Greeks first. And it was the Athenians who actually repelled the, uh, um, who repelled the Persians at that point. They were outnumbered, they were, they were outnumbered, they were outplanned, they were out, all of these things. They ended up gaining victory, and they sent a runner, um, Philatides, from Athens, from Marathon, Greece, to Athens, Greece, which, which is about 25 miles. 25 miles. That's a big, I mean, it was, it was difficult. When I ran the marathon, um, I wasn't sure until like that day whether or not I was going to be able to do it. I had done 20 miles the week before, and I was, I, I thought that was my limit. So it was kind of neat to see where I had other limits. It didn't help either that on that day, um, it was rainy. It washed out the roads. So actually I had, it was like an obstacle course marathon. Not what I was expecting at all. It was, it, was, it was hard, but you know, you run at a pace that you feel comfortable at. You try to get to the aerobic zone, which means to be able to carry on a conversation. Philatides, he must have went beyond that, sprinted the whole way, because he gets to Athens, and he shouts out, Nike, which means victory. Then he keeled over and died. So we honor that by all running 25 miles and hoping we don't die. Um... You know, it's our role, our mission, is that we also have a message of good news, of victory to give. Are you ready? Are your feet ready for that race? Think back to a time when you were waiting to hear a report of something. Maybe it was the outcome of a sporting event, and you wanted to know how your son or daughter or your relative did, or maybe even more serious, it was a medical test. How wonderful and how much did you appreciate the person who gave you good news? The tests are negative. Your team won. I remember in college, um, me and two friends, we uh, we had this bright idea that in November in North Dakota, you know, it's a great time to go uh, to go camping um, out in the middle of nowhere. So not a campsite, middle of nowhere camping in North Dakota. On top of that, it was November, and we knew it was supposed to storm that night. But we were thinking, well, you know, we'll be fine. And uh, we, got a, we got a tent out and everything, and that night it actually didn't storm. It didn't storm until the morning that we got up. And I remember at the time, we all woke up, and we were college students, so we wanted to sleep in, and, uh, which was a very bad idea because we had time to get out. But we didn't take that time. We just decided to sleep in. And uh, it got, the rain got much, much worse. We were in the valley, it started flooding. So we had to hurry up, grab all of our stuff, run to the car. And we got in the car, we started up the car, and we found out something very interesting. That when you're not on a road, a, a, you know, a two-wheel, you know, a, a front-wheel drive a vehicle can't get out of mud. So we were stuck. We started talking to each other. Did anybody tell anybody where we were going? And all of us were like, we don't, we don't think so. My friend Tyler was like, I think I may have told my family, but I don't know. So we're like, so how long are we going to be out here? How long can this go on um, before it all dries up? 
So we started getting a little desperate. We had packed some food with us. We packed some of these uh, brats that were not the Johnsonville brats that are already boiled. They were raw brats. And I don't know why I was such a pig to think that, like, i got to eat right now. But I did. And so I took the cigarette lighter, and I was, like, singeing it. And I guess I did eat that raw brat. Um, so we're wondering, how long is this going to happen? We were cold. We were wet. We were stuck. And then all of a sudden, I saw a and I, you know, he was like an angel. We're saved. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. <laughs> Tyler's dad was smarter than us. He parked on cement. He parked on the actual road instead of in, inside the gulch. And we, we, were, we, we, were, we were okay. We went back later to get the car. In Ephesians, it's called the gospel of peace. The shoes, the ready are shoes with the gospel of peace. This is not a peace as in calm. Sometimes we'll read this, maybe we think that. That the primary peace that God is telling the earth is that when I'm really worried, that I can then calm myself because he's come to bring peace. Now there is, he is shalom, he is Yahweh shalom, our peace. But that's not the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here as he talks about the gospel peace. It's not like you're really worried about something and you just need to calm down. This is the peace that's between two warring parties. Before you knew Christ, you were an enemy of Christ. That's what the scriptures say. We were enemies of God in our minds. That we were, in our sin, in our, in our reluctance to bow to him, we were his enemies. And when there is two, when there is a conflict between two sides, there needs to be a peace. And he has come to bring peace. If you offend, or worse yet, injure someone else, you are, you are liable for legal action. Take, for instance, if you slap your kid... You might get them taken away. Now all the parents are like, oh, what? Um, I guess I better not do that. If you slap your spouse, you might get divorced. If you slap a stranger, you might get slapped back or might spend a couple days in jail. But if you slap a judge, you'll be in jail for many days. If you slap the president of the United States, you'll be lucky to leave the room alive. You, me, everyone... Everyone who has sinned, that includes everyone, we have slapped the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is what sin is. We make light of sin. We say it's just a white lie. Let's just talk about that one one. Do not, that one, that one commandment, do not lie. And we make all excuses for lying. But think about this. In him there is truth, there is light, there is no darkness. To lie is to be the very exact opposite of who he is. There are so many other ways we have sinned. We have slapped the king of the universe in the face. We make light of sin, but God doesn't. We like to say, God is not angry with you. And that's true, but he should be. He should be furious with you. But if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he isn't. Why? Because Jesus Christ took your just punishment you deserved. When we look at the cross, we can look at what we deserved. But Christ was nailed in our place. He suffered the wrath of God in our place. The good news is that there is now peace between us and God if we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ. This is good news, and it is the news of victory, it's the news of peace. It is now your job, dear believer, to herald the good news. Once again, are your feet ready? The first piece of the armor we talked about was truth, and it's the belt. 
I like how the belt was the center of who the soldier was and carried his equipment. The truth is our center. The truth holds our equipment in place. You have a relationship with the truth because the truth is not a set of ideas, it is a person. The second piece of the armor was righteousness. You put on this type of righteousness as you submit to the Spirit's work in your life. That Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Now we have, now we have peace. Peace is Christ's goal in this war. We have peace that we, have, we herald this peace that has been won and is available to all how, who are his enemies. That's why we must ready our shoes. When we talk about the peace of God, it's an amazing thing because God has decided on peace before we were willing to accept his peace. Think to your mind, the worst thing you've ever done, God knew it. In that moment, know this, he decided to die for you. Without Christ, there is nothing in us that should make him love us. What excuse does the Bible use for God loving us? Nothing other than that he loves us. He does not love you because you were born in Iowa. He doesn't love you because you come to this church. He doesn't love you because you agree with what I say. He doesn't love you for any of the reasons you may think. He loves you because he's decided to love you. Wow. He's decided to love you. This is the message of the gospel of Christ that is ours to ready ourselves with, to stand on I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Today's piece of the armor we look at is the shoes of the messenger of peace. The peace has been, and is, and will be one. Our role is to tell others of this peace. Today we are looking at Romans chapter 10. That expands the idea, expands the, idea of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Today as we look through Romans chapter 10, verses um, 9 through 17, we're going to look at what the gospel is. We say the gospel a lot. We're going to talk about exactly what the gospel is today. The necessity of hearing the gospel and your mission. My first point here, this is going to be through verses 9 through 13 and Romans chapter 10. It is the gospel. Today, like every other Sunday, I have the best job in the world. I get to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today may be more direct because our verses are actually talking about the gospel of peace. But every Sunday I, I endeavor to get the gospel in there because Paul thought it was a safeguard for us. The scriptures declare it's the power of God for salvation. Many think the gospel is great for the start of our walk with Jesus Christ. Now I've gotten saved, I want to go to the deeper things of God. There's nothing deeper than the gospel. There's nothing deeper than the gospel. No eye has seen, no ear has heard no mind can conceive what the Lord has in store for those who love him. There's a theologian of the 20th century named Karl Barth. Karl Barth, when you think of theologians, he's the guy. He knows way more than anybody here does. He studied the scriptures. On April, April 23, 1962, Karl Barth, the now 20th century Swiss-German neo-Orthodox theologian, spoke at Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago. Many have reported that during a Q&A, a student asked Karl Barth, if you, could summarize, if you could summarize your theology in a single sentence. As the story goes, Barth responded by saying, In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This, this guy knew it. 
theology, philosophy. When he was asked, summarize it all into one sentence, he's like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The scripture is a mirror. The more I understand of sin, the more I understand how worthy I am of God's justice and how amazing those words become. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because he loves me, because he loves me, it's rooted in him, not in me, then I don't have to worry about him not loving me anymore. When reading Ephesians, I knew right away the image Paul was getting at of the shoes of peace. It's one he's used to in other letters. In Romans 10, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is right after, though, the clencher in the Romans wrote evangelistic tool. I don't know if you've ever seen this. In certain verses that are in the book of Romans, um, they go along the plan of salvation of how we are all sinners and that the gift of God is eternal life. The penalty of sin is death. And, and then finally, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, is those very popular verses here. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as with your heart, for as with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Amen. This has to be one of the most misunderstood verses in our modern day context. The scripture has mis- been misunderstood for years. This says that if you confess with your you confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So the question becomes, well, if you just get a Satanist to read this verse, is he now saved, even though he doesn't believe in Jesus? Then, of course, they know. However, we've made the sinner's prayer just that, magic words that get you into the kingdom. We try to comfort a person who's living in open sin, that if they prayed that prayer at one point in time, they're fine. Just tell the devil to get behind them when really the Holy Spirit is convicting them. If you just look at this, as long as you just say the words, Jesus is Lord, you're saved, then you have a real problem with Jesus who said that not everybody on, me, on that day who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Right. He tells them, away from me, you workers of iniquity. The literal, literal phrase in there is you who lived like I never gave a law. I never knew you. What Paul's audience would have understood here is what we don't understand, which is the phraseology of confessing Jesus as Lord. So let's look at that word, Lord. In the Koine Greek, the original language the New Testament is written in, the word is kyrios. Kyrios. It means supreme in authority, as a noun. Controller, by implication, master, a respectful title. God, Lord, master, sir. And what was happening in the Roman Empire at this time, the Roman Empire was actually known as being more, one of the more tolerant of the empires, of the conquering empires. Most of the time, like unfortunately, like when the Babylonians came in, they would just take everybody that they thought was a threat, kill them, and take everybody they thought they could use and take them over to where they're at. The Romans, they let people basically govern themselves-ish. As long as they, they could worship any god they wanted, as long as once a year they would take a pinch of incense in front of a statue or an image of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and they would put the pinch of incense into the fire. This became a problem for this church who would confess Jesus and only Jesus as Lord. Amen. He is supreme in authority. And only him do I bow to. 
The Roman officials, they couldn't understand why, why he wouldn't just do this. You don't even have to mean it. And these little compromises are so much in our culture, you don't have to mean it, you just have to go along to get along and follow the, the damnable works of this world in order, to, in order to fit in. But those early Christians decided, no, only Christ is Lord. So he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He is saying that no one else is. Right. Not the government, no man, not even yourself. Only Christ is. Do not take that pinch of incense. One of the early martyrs in the church was a man named, by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Beloved, John the Revelator, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, John 1, 2, and 3, and the Book of Revelation. Polycarp was a major leader in the church, and he was also a martyr. What had happened was a group of believers, they were very zealous, and they... Um, I also put this, they wanted to be martyred, so they went up to the Roman officials, and they're like, we won't, we won't, you know, we won't bow to Caesar, and so they, they started hurting them, and they ended up taking their pinch of incense and throwing it into the fire anyway. So this caused the people to get agitated, and they wanted, they wanted blood, and the leader of the church in the area was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp um, wasn't looking to go anywhere. His church convinced him to go to the countryside, the soldiers found him anyway. Polycarp actually provided a meal for them as they came in. And he truly believed, you provide, a, you provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When they ate at, the, when they ate at, his, at his table, he readied himself for what was about to happen. He heard from the Lord, and the Lord told him, play the man. He was arrested on the charge of being a Christian. A member of a politically dangerous cult whose rapid growing growth needed to be stopped. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue, he would escape torture and death. To this, Polycarp responded, 86, 80 and 6 years I have served Christ. And he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs. He was taken to a stake which was lit on fire, and according to, according to tradition, according to the testimony um, of those who wrote the letter, the fire didn't burn him, it actually went around him. Seeing that he was not burning up, one of the soldiers took out his gladius and stabbed Polycarp in the stomach and his blood put out the fire. And Polycarp was added to the role of those who will be most honored at the end of all things, a martyr for Jesus Christ. Because he would not declare Caesar as Lord. There are so many ways, there are so many different ways we are told to compromise. It's just a small thing. It's just a pinch of incense. You don't have to mean it. I mean, just, just, just shut up that work. That's all. Just don't actually, don't actually, you know, take advantage that you have a freedom of speech in this country. But even if we don't, it doesn't matter. We don't proclaim, we don't proclaim the government as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Who gets to decide whether a church shuts down? Not the government, but Christ. Amen. In these verses it says, 
that no one who's put their faith in you should ever be put to shame. One of the first tactics of persecution in any culture, whether it gets violent or not, is shaming. The very first piece of graffiti that we have preserved, assuming that those uh, cave paintings aren't saying like Bob was here, it's called the Alexamendios Graffitio. It was one of the earliest examples of graffiti that is preserved today. It is an image of a young man bowing down, and he is bowing down to a figure that is being crucified with a donkey's head. And the inscription says, Alexamendios worships his God. It is the lightest form of persecution, but as you've seen this last few years, it seems to be effective because so many are departing the faith. Because they're being mocked. Because they're being called fundamentalists, they're being called extremists, they're being called all of these things, basically are being told, just, just say our culture is important. Just say Hollywood is important. Just say the government is important. But I tell you, God has put you, given you shoes so that you may stand and proclaim only Jesus is Lord. That is his gospel. Amen. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. My second point is just one verse, chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This point is the necessity of preaching the gospel. You've probably heard this quote before. It's attributed to Francis of Assisi. Um, now, I haven't actually been able to find, like, to validate that, so it makes me wonder, perhaps it's like, a, I know I've made this joke before, but I'm making it again. Um, maybe it's like another quote from Abraham Lincoln, don't believe everything you read on the internet. But it's this, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. People use this as a way of getting people to shut up about the more negative aspects of the gospel. Namely, why in the world do you need peace with God in the first place? Sin. Just love them into, a, into the kingdom. I wonder how many people are in hell who have great Christian friends who thought that they just needed to preach the gospel at all times and never use their words. A lot of church growth strategies are designed with this idea in mind. Just get people into the door. Just get people into the door. You know, get them with some kind of gimmick, with some kind of giveaway. Just get people into the door. Get people in the seats. And then after a while, you can preach the word of God and then they'll be converted. It's bait and switch. It's the kind of stuff a cult would do. That is not the people of Jesus Christ. Our message is on our sleeve. Our message is on our heart. Our message is beyond who we even are. The message is the message of Jesus Christ. It's not like what, that those strategies are nothing like what verse 14 says. The verse 14 says that there needs to be somebody preaching to them. People see verse 14, they just want to be like, that's your opinion, man. It's not my opinion, it's God's word. Amen. They can't call on the one they've never heard, and they cannot hear without someone preaching to them. We don't like the word preaching, though, do we? Don't preach to me. By far the most preaching people I've ever met are people who hate being preached to. Yeah. Right. Now, we don't mind a lot of preaching. I mean, as long as it's the kind of preaching we like. How about, like, you know, when it comes to climate change? How dare you? Politics, we just went through our political season. Everybody wanted to press their politics on somebody else, right? 
They don't like other people preaching their politics, but I want to preach my politics. Sports teams, deflate gate, need I say more? When it comes to movies, you know, Wonder Woman 84 was a letdown, and I don't care if you liked it. But for me to tell you that not only I, but for me to tell you that I am not the only preacher in this room, might get you a little worried that you are also a preacher. Amen. We're also Amen. Jesus Christ. Everywhere you go, you may be the only Bible anybody even knows about, so you better know the word. You better be able to know what the message of Jesus Christ is, because God has called you, and that is his only method of evangelism on this planet, is his message. Amen. It is not living such a great life so somebody might be, be ushered into the kingdom of God, it's so that they can praise your Father in heaven, because God is principally about his glory. And you living a good life that is great for you, it's great for others because they see, they see what God's done in your life and they praise God. But when it comes to people knowing of Jesus Christ, it is the message and the message are none, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen. There's a major barrier to someone believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul refers to it as a veil. And that only in Christ is this veil removed. No, we shouldn't put anything else in front of it, too. Us being judgmental, hypocritical, mean, we'll put even more barriers in place. Probably the worst thing we can do, though, is try to save somebody ourselves. Right. You can't. You can't save anybody. It's above your pay grade. Amen. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen. If you're not speaking Jesus, you're not preaching a gospel. You're preaching another gospel. And that really leads me to the final point. The point of having these shoes on is that you have a mission. It's like Mission Impossible, right? Here's your mission. Should you choose to should you choose to accept it? Well, this is your mission, whether you choose to accept it or not. <laughs> Verses fifteen through seventeen. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Not through any other mean, but by the word of Christ. When we talk about church, a lot of people view church as a cruise ship. They ask, am I being entertained? Is the staff meeting my needs and my wants? Am I getting my money's worth? A lot of people, when they're looking for church, that's their biggest thing. It's like, what's the worship like? And I was talking to a good friend of mine who's been a worship leader for probably longer than I've been alive. And this guy is amazing on the piano. I remember one time at camp, he's playing the piano so furiously, he literally bled onto the keys. This guy is amazing. So I'm talking to him, and we're talking about um, different things when it comes to you know, using our abilities um, for, for Christ. And, and he brought up this point that, you know, one of the things we say in church, it's really misleading, is that we say, instead of saying I'm entertained, we say I'm blessed. Yes. I'm like, I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I like having that spiritual connotation to it. I'm like, you're right, am I just looking to be entertained? So I'm truly being blessed. It doesn't matter the quality then, does it? For a short period of time, me and Becca attended this very small church. And, like, I remember the first day, they wanted us, like, on the choir, which was weird, you know, because we were just starting there. And it was, it was a cappella, but they knew Becca could play piano, that's why they wanted her on the worship team, and they, they got me along, too. Um, 
We are so incredibly blessed, even though it wasn't entertaining. Because when I look at church, I know we are a battleship. We are a battleship. Everybody has the same mission, the same goal, and we are all in the same direction. We may have different functions on how that mission gets gets accomplished, but we all have the same mission. You have a mission, and it's in those shoes. It is the gospel of peace. You have been sent. You have beautiful feet, which is something outside of this sermon I wouldn't say because I think feet are gross. <laughs> when we talk about the mission, we get confused in what our mission actually is. If you ask, if you ask probably a hundred different preachers, they may say a hundred different things. I hope not. But a lot of people have different ideas on what this mission is when it comes to evangel, when it comes to evangelism, and how that can go about. So let me let me talk about some of the things of what our mission is not. Those of you who served in the armed services, hopefully you didn't have times like that where people were very confused what the mission was and different opinions on it on what it is. So let me tell you about some of the things that the mission is not, then I'll say what the mission is. Your mission is not to save people. Your mission is not to save people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He makes them alive in Christ. You don't. Amen. Amen. Here's the second thing. It is not your mission to change somebody's mind. So spending like a hundred pages on a forum, debating, 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 your mission is not to change their mind. You are not going to get somebody, even if you were to get somebody to agree on a set of beliefs, that does not mean that they know Jesus Christ. Their problem is not stinking thinking. It's their problem is that they're dead in their transgressions and sins. Your mission is not even to change their heart. You cannot give somebody who has a heart of stone a heart of flesh. Once again, that's above your pay grade. Right. Here's another one. When it comes to growth strategies and stuff, probably one I'm most at, at, at odds with is the idea of trying to make church, yourself, or Jesus cool so that they will follow Christ. Mm-hmm. If you think the early church cared one iota whether or not Jesus was cool, you know something? You don't die because you're a follower of Elvis, right? That's right. You don't die because you're like, Miles Davis was the best... Um, Trump, um, <laughs> that's um, trumpet player that's ever lived, and I will not hear anything else. You die because the man has saved you by his blood. Amen. They don't care. Your mission is not to get them to like you, the church, or Jesus. This might come as a surprise because so many church growth strategies are based on are based on getting people in the church to think the church is cool. They have whole series of sermons that have never been mentioned in the Scripture or followed the Scripture at all, but just have the Scripture at the beginning so they go on into what they're talking about. Finally, what your mission is, and worship team can come up at this time. So what is your mission? Your mission is the message. Now don't get me wrong. There is a lot that is essential in you getting across the message and not to make it more metal than it needs to, but believe this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You need the Holy Spirit when it comes to redemption. Amen. You need the Holy Spirit. You're going to be like, okay, I've got a list of five things, and by the fifth thing, they're going to sign on the dotted line. We've had evangelism like that for now, several generations, and we're seeing a great falling away because people signed on to a cruise ship, and they found out I'm on a battleship. Right. The holy evangelism is spiritual warfare. Amen. 
When it comes to evangelism, one thing we need to understand is what Paul is saying in verse 15. He's pointing out that there is a spiritual component to evangelism. That is why you need this part of the armor. He will stretch this out over the next couple chapters of Romans and in Ephesians. But just for you, that is there too, that evangelism is spiritual warfare. It's the thing the enemy hates the most, is to lose somebody. It's to lose somebody to his side, so he is fighting like crazy against you. When we think about evangelism, I kind of said this before, we don't when it comes to preaching, we don't care about preaching, right? We, we talk about our ideas all the time, our opinions. We don't care what the other person thinks. But when it comes to telling somebody about Jesus, our breast sticks in our throat. We get such anxiety over it. Believe me, that is not only from you. That is from our enemy. Because the last thing he wants you to do is make a stand for Jesus Christ, to stand for the truth, to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. He attacks, he attacks, and he attacks. When it comes to evangelizing about anything else, once again, we don't care. One of my go-to things is, I have no problem telling you that the Transformer movies were trash. I don't care if you like them. I don't care if you don't like me because I don't like them. I know that that's true. But tomorrow, when you go to school and you go to work, and it comes to a point where everybody's talking about what we believe, and you're having a hard time getting the words out, there's something to that. Yes. There's something spiritual to that. Amen. And at that point in time, we put on the shoes. We put on the shoes. Are you ready? Have you checked your shoes? Have you ready to put them on? To be ready in the gospel of peace? We'll be ending our service, how we've done it other times, but it's going to be a little special today. <clears throat> Instead of a benediction... I want to do a commissioning service for everyone who's here. Scripture says, how can, they, how can they go if they're not sent? So I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you into your communities, into your families. When I, when I became a pastor, when I became ordained, I went through a ceremony, and the elders and the assemblies of God of Iowa laid their hands on me in order to send me out. Now, it would take a very long time to put my hands on all of you, so at the end of the service, I'll have you raise your hands and I will commission you to the work of the gospel in your town, in your family, at your school, at your work, wherever you find yourself. I will commission you to the work of the gospel, the work of the preaching of the gospel, wherever you are, because my job is to equip you for the ministry, not to do the ministry for you. All of you are fellow ministers with me. Right. We were reading there, there's no, neither Jew nor Greek. Paul will go into this theme so many other times that there is not tears of Christianity. God has put me in a certain position, but that doesn't make me over you or better than you or a different mission than you are. We all have the same mission. Will you please join us as we sing together?